The contents of this podcast are provided for general information and educational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, legal, tax or other professional advice. Welcome to the Money Magnet Podcast, helping you attract and keep a fortune that counts with co-hosts self-made money magnet Steve McKnight and esteemed journalist Rowan Wen. Rowan, the chaotic evil cleric, and I are back what? <laughs> with the next episode of Money Magnet. How's your week been, Row? LTD, my friend, living the dream. Living the dream or dreaming about living. Right then, we're onwards and upwards, and today we're going to take a closer look at Chapter 3 of Money Magnet, Seeing is Believing. That's right. Now, I've got a random question for you. Hmm? How long have you been wearing glasses for? Ah, well, that's a story. Yes. Here's a story. I used to catch a school bus to school for a little while at the start of high school, year seven. There was a guy on the bus who I would mercilessly tease for wearing glasses and I'd call him four eyes and he had the big thick Coke bottle glasses. What kind of kid were you? Oh, I got run over by the Karma bus because about a year after teasing him about wearing glasses, guess what? Let me guess. You got glasses. I got glasses. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so four eyes became four eyes here. So you had glasses, right? Because how bad was your vision? Things were fuzzy and I couldn't see the blackboard from the middle or back of the room. And what happened, I remember it distinctly, was that I got my glasses and I went outside and I'm like, holy cow, there are leaves on trees. Because You're kidding. I'd, you hadn't seen them. Well, they're all just a fuzzy, blurry mess. Yeah, right. A blob. And I'm like, I can see an individual leaf really in sharp detail. I was astounded. And what's that got to do with money? <laughs> well, it's a bit of an illustration, but for a lot of people, their finances are just a fuzzy yeah, blob mm-hmm. because they're not seeing right. And so they need something to help them focus their attention so they can see. And you've said before, as a kid, you struggled a bit with your weight, hmm. which brings me to the next point you made in chapter three. You said budgets are like diets. Mm. So let's unpack that. I have struggled with weight most of my life, and I think it's a self-esteem issue as well. And I was quite overweight as a younger person, and I there are some reasons for that. Part of it was I nearly died after an appendix operation with complications. But I turned to food for comfort, and shout out to all the other listeners who do that. And so I've constantly throughout my life got to a point where I've wanted to do something about my weight, done something about it, followed a program. Weight Watchers has worked really well for me, lost the weight. And then gradually the weight has crept back on again because I, self-confession here, want to lose weight so I can eat whatever I want without feeling guilty about it. But the problem with doing that is that you abandon the eating regime that causes you to lose weight, you regress, and then all of a sudden the weight comes back on and you've got to go back on to the diet. So you're up and down, up and down, and then you're sort of like driving in the middle by lurching left and right, which isn't particularly effective. So what I would say is that when I don't have a system that I'm following, when I'm following my own intuition, because weight is a problem for me and a weakness for me, my intuition's not particularly good. So the scaffolding I need and the support I need is someone else's program or someone else's system that when I follow it, it works. Now, is there guilt and shame for not being able to manage my own weight? in a self-managed way? Well, a little bit, row to be honest. But then a lot of people can't manage their money in the same way, or a lot of people have smoking issues, or they might take drugs, or it could be anything that people struggle with and they need some help. 
And to me, the only shame and guilt associated with needing help is not asking for it when you do need it. It's a humbling experience to say you don't have everything sorted out, and that's okay. So you need help, and you need the right kind of help, and you need the plan that we keep talking about. Now, let's look at the plans for a minute, because I want to talk about Scott Pape, who writes a lot of books as well. I'm sure the listeners at home would know who we're talking about. And he's somebody who advocates savings a lot and says, save your way to wealth. But you sort of say in your book, that's not a way forward, as you said. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, Scott's sold a lot of books, and I think that's great because he's contributed to the discussion around financial empowerment. Would I do what Scott advocates? No, because I think that's leading to what I call middle-class wealth, and I want more than middle-class wealth. So what does that mean? He's got a plan that will eventually lead you to rely on the pension to some degree in retirement. And I think the better plan is to not need the pension at all. The book talks a lot about that, doesn't it? That the pension, as you see it, should be really just something if you desperately need it as opposed to something that you rely on. A lot of Australians think the pension is some sort of payback for a lifetime of taxes paid. But coming back to the message in Scott's book, I think that really resonates with readers because it feeds into the programming that we received from our parents. Like, did your parents tell you, hey, it's important to save money? Did you have a piggy bank? Yeah, yeah. we all got the piggy banks from school. as Commonwealth Bank. Exactly. Save up your money. Which is great branding for the bank, by the way. Just a little bit subtle there. And Scott rightly calls that out. He's like, yeah. yeah well, Actually, he does too. Yeah. Like, I used to work with Scott's wife back at Channel 7 back in the day, just as an aside. And that's where I think that it's a positive message that's getting out there. But how many people do you know that got rich by saving money? Zero. That's right. So if saving money won't get you rich... Is saving money the way to get rich? And the answer is, of course not. It's part of the plan. I mean, you don't want to spend on stuff you don't need, but it's not about saving the money. It's about going and do something with it, yeah? And this is where Scott and I diverge in a yellow wood because I say that teaching your kids to save to spend is actually a recipe for a lifetime of financial disempowerment. Now, it's better than borrowing to spend, but what you really need to do is teach your kids to save, to invest. And this is where it falls over because our parents, most parents, don't know how to teach their kids how to invest because they don't know how to invest. Indeed. They can teach their kids to save because part of their programming from their parents and so on and so forth back through time was all this saving piece. So to write a book about you need to save money feeds people's understanding of their programming. But to come out to say to someone, saving's actually a mistake. And it's like, what? What? How can you say that? That's like so counter. And it's like, well, how many people do you know who saved their way to financial freedom? Uh, no one. Well, clearly, saving's not going to get you there. Does that mean that saving is useless? No. Saving is necessary so you get the capital to invest. But let's talk more about investing than we do about saving. And you do talk a lot about investing. That's been your whole life, right? But yeah. then I'm reading the book and you sort of say in the book, that about 5% of people are the ones who actually pull it off and 95% of people who buy the book or read the book or try some stuff don't get there. That's not the biggest success rate. I'm not being critical, by the way. No, well, is it a 95% failure rate? If you've got a 5% success rate. I don't like the term failure, but, you know. Well, let's call it what it is. Does that mean that people, Steve, who've been coming to your seminars for 20 years, two decades, 95% of them have failed? And it's a hard question to answer because I don't track everyone's individual results. But what I think happens is that it's an incremental progression. So the saying is the teacher comes when the student's ready. So people come along and they learn something, they go and implement it, but it takes time to be a success. So I have thought about this a lot. And the fact that it works for some people should mean that it can theoretically work for everyone. Yeah. But there must be some sort of row missing X factor mm-hmm. in all of this. Now, is it a single X factor or is it a multiple X factor? 
So how does success lead to failure? Success leads to failure because, as Brendan Nichols once said, the enemy of a great life is a good life. So you're motivated. Who's Brendan Nichols? Brendan Nichols is a guy who's in the wealth creation industry. He's been doing it longer than I have. He's one of the good guys and very learned. And I don't know if he came up with the saying. I doubt he did, but he's the one I heard it from, so I attribute it to him. So what happens here is that you're motivated to make change in your life. And then as you make that change, the painful thing that caused you to make the change isn't as painful anymore. So instead of getting through to your full potential, you give up halfway through. It's the classic why hunt if you're not hungry. And you see that getting back to your dieting analogy, right? Where people go, I'm skinny enough, right? But they're not actually at their desired weight. They sort of give up because they're close enough. There's a lot of compromise there, isn't there? How do you stay motivated? That's a good question. How do you stay motivated? It's probably different for everyone, Ro, but to me, motivation is linked to both urgency and also resourcing. And I don't know how everyone else gets motivated. I get motivated by seeing results. And that's why when it takes a while for results to come, it's easy to give up or fall away or say it's not going to work this time. But that's when you need to stay the course and stick with the plan. All right. So what does it feel like to be financially free for people at home who aren't there yet? It means you can play Dungeons and Dragons all day, every day. It feels good. It feels great. What are you talking about? Fair enough. Or play golf or whatever you choose to do. Whatever you think. It's actually liberating in the sense that someone's not telling you what to do and when to do it. But it's not the cure for all ills and problems in life, that's for sure. So back to budgets. Would you say they're essential or are they just part of a broader plan? Well, if you can't see a reason to sacrifice or delay gratification, this is what I wrote in the book, then why bother with consumption restraint? You only need a budget if you've got a reason for budgeting. Got it. And for a lot of people, they don't have a reason for budgeting that's greater than the pain associated with the budget. So they do it for a little while. They don't do it at all. So no, I don't think it's essential. But what I would say is without some form of cost control or expense control, which we call budgeting, how do you control and measure your finances so you spend less than you earn? How do you even know? You're just spending money. Yeah. Now, I don't have a personal budget for the household. Yep. But in lieu of a personal budget, what I do is I look at the bank account every month and if there's less money in it than the start of the month, I know that we're not controlling our spending. Got it. So it's really simple. So long as I've got more money at the end of the month, then that's a good month. Now, if I was more planned and more strategic about it, then I think that I would get an even better and more efficient result. But contrast that with the funds that I run and the businesses that I run, and of course there's a budget. So then the question becomes, well, why don't you apply that level of discipline into your own life? And that's because the cost of doing so, in my opinion, and the effort of doing so isn't worth the reward because I'm already naturally skilled in that regard. Yeah. But if you don't have those skills, if you don't have that discipline, that's where you should start. So Prime Minister Paul Keating, former Prime Minister Paul Keating, used to talk about the vision thing and he sort of joked about it and it became a bit of a joke in Canberra. But he actually, I would argue, hit onto something here because human beings generally, we're not designed, our brains aren't designed to think in literal words. We think in pictures and imagery. So how important is it for your motivation to visualise almost what life is going to look and feel like when you get that financial freedom. Mm, that's a bit out there. Again, I think it's different <laughs> for everyone. Some people really need the the vision board and the pictures of what life's going to look like mm. when they reach their goal. As I think thing. a lot of people do. I don't think you do, by the way, which makes you unique. <laughs> but I think a lot of people need to sort of imagine what it looks like, visualize it, almost have an emotional connection to that visualization. And that provides significant motivation for some folk. I don't need it because I'm driven by, I don't want the negative outcome, not driven by the positive outcome. So fear rather than Well, I don't want to be poor in retirement. 
I didn't yeah. want to have to work my whole life. Uh, there were these driving factors to make change. But if they're not the motivating factors for you, if you're motivated by the carrot rather than the stick, then yeah, put up your vision board and look at it daily and remind yourself why the sacrifice is worthwhile. Now, earlier in the week, I was getting a bit back and forth with a group of friends and one of them had a really interesting thing about money. And she's actually quite well off this friend of mine through marriage and various works of herself. And she made a really important point about happiness because another person in a friendship group is struggling at the moment and is saying, if only I had money, I'd be really happy. I've got to read it to you, actually, because I wrote it down. I know more rich, miserable people than rich, happy people. Money can't buy happiness. It can make your life more comfortable, but you have to be happy first. Discuss. Yeah, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I actually think money can buy happiness. Okay. I disagree <laughs> completely, but you go first. <laughs> I go first. You can spend your money on things that add meaning and significance into your life, and that can make you happy. Money can buy happiness. Money can allow you to resource things that you draw happiness from. Can you buy happiness as a box off the grocery shelf? No. Is it likely that you can buy happiness from material possessions? I'm yet to see anyone who's mastered doing that. A lot of people try. But I can honestly, faithfully, and 100% tell you that if you use your money in ways that touch, move, and inspire other people, you can buy happiness. I think we kind of have more common ground than it would first appear. It can make your life more comfortable, and it's easier to be happy if you're comfortable and not stressing out about money. I get that completely, right? And you've got your life back and your freedom back, and you're not working for the man and hating it, you know? But I've met hundreds and hundreds of rich, miserable people because they want to get rich because they're miserable thinking that'll make them happy and it never does. You've kind of got to have some joy in your life anyway. Go back to the words of the great Jesus Christ, is your treasure in heaven or on earth? Because if you surround yourself with things, rarely leads your soul to be happy. That's why you need to invest in things that make you happy, which aren't materialistic in nature. And that's the bit that I wrote about in the book about transcending survival into significance. I feel like I should be quoting George Michael right now because <laughs> you've done a Jesus Christ. I can't think of one. Wake me up before you go-go. doesn't work, does it? No. <laughs> Not on this occasion. Okay, there you go. We'll stick with JC. Okay, so you finish up the chapter with two important insights, mm. that if you don't have a vision for your money, someone else will, which I think is a really good point, and that money is attracted to financial foresight and repelled from financial ignorance. Yep. So how does somebody who struggles to see financially find this vision you talk about? So we're back to the glasses situation here and the seeing is believing. I think we get back to the point that you think about what you want, that you want to move towards, and or you think about what you don't want, what you want to move away from, and that provides the vision and focus for you. So joy or fear, really? Fear of having a bad outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So are you motivated to move towards something pleasurable, which is the carrot, or are you motivated to move away from something you don't want? I was motivated from moving away from having to do accounting. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want. And that was enough to get me started. And then over the journey, various opportunities have come about. Try that. No, that's not it. Try that. No, that's not it. And right now it's seems to be planting trees and reforestation, but I'm sure there's other things with the grace of God, if I live long enough, that I'll feel excited and motivated about. So carrot or stick, whatever works for you, I guess. I prefer to eat carrots. But... <laughs> okay. Well, great chat as always, Steve. What about some takeaways? Remember that money can be used to buy things, which are material possessions, but it also can be used to buy time, which is time that you've got that you don't have to then work for someone else. And because time's finite, time's more valuable. I'd ask everyone listening, what program or process are you following right now? And for a lot of people, they'll be like, well, nothing. I don't have one, yeah. I'm not following a program or a process. And that's an insight in and of itself because you're just trying to do the best you can day in, day out. 
you can always go back to that. Why don't you try being planned or programmed for a little while? See how it goes, right? See how it goes. And if you, like I said, if you don't like it, then you can go back to winging it, which is what you're doing now. What's currently compelling or will become compelling, which is all about wisdom, about what you're trying to do? Yep. So are you being wise? Do you have a plan based on actual wisdom or are you just making it up? What's the reason for what you're doing? And if that reason isn't powerful enough, when the reason subsides, then does that mean your progress is going to stop? If you can tap into something that drives you forward, that continues to motivate you, then you'll continue to make progress. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm willing to call it. I think humans are fundamentally lazy beings. And if we can get a result without having to work for it, we gravitate towards it. That's a little misanthropic, mate. I mean, (laughs) you seem very hard on people. (laughs) No, what? Humans are human. Yeah, well, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I'm just saying understand what your weakness is. Yeah. And don't play to your weakness, play to your strength. Totally. And we are at the end of the podcast. No, I want to continue. I know, mate. I'm loving it too. But guess what? We can do another one. So I will see you next time. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Money Magnet podcast. If you have questions or would like to provide feedback, then please send an email to podcast at moneymagnet.au. 